0: You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Today's topic is one near and dear to Father Paul's heart. I know Richard because we have heard him discuss the implications of this topic in many and various ways when explaining the Apostle Paul to us. The subject this morning is the term possess versus the term inherit. Father Paul, good morning.
2: Good morning, Father Paul. Good morning, good morning, morning to both of you.
1: We're very excited to hear you delve into this topic and to hear you talk about possess versus
2: inherit. You are excited, Father Mark. I'm not Because I have to deal not with barbarians, but from my perspective as a Semite, educated Indo-Aryans, but they are barbarians when it comes to dealing with the scriptural language. And I stress this, and let me make an aside, because that is very important. One of the greatest news I received is an email from Meriameras, our friend in Finland, who read my book, was very impressed. And then she said during a conversation with Tapani Harviainen, he is perhaps the top man in Semitic languages in the world. Can you imagine his dissertation was on the vocalism of the closed, unstressed syllables in Hebrew, a study based on the evidence provided by the transcriptions of St. Jerome and Palestinian. And then he wrote a Hebrew textbook on vocabulary and so on. He's amazing. And he just launched a book on the deities of the ancient Near East. When she mentioned to him, he's a friend of hers, and I actually met him personally, and he took me out to dinner when I went in Finland. I'm quoting her in the email. I went to him and asked what he thinks of the idea that Hebrew is a concocted language. He said that we do not know how Hebrew actually came to be. This is the greatest possible gift to my thesis and then they decided to talk more about that notice who said that well i made this introduction because the whole thing in the hebrew plays on a series of terms so it's not a question as to whether what is possess and inherit and so on. however the trouble is that and i'll begin with rsv because it's the greatest calamity you hear in Joshua eight seven, then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Now this seize is the translation of the fifth verbal form, the Hifil, of the verb Yarash, which technically means inherit. We still have it in Arabic. And then later. RSV starts translating that same root as possess. So we have to realize that there lies the problem. Now, when you add to that, that you have a series of words that are translated sometimes to inherit, sometimes to possess, then it becomes very complicated. Like you have the verb nahal from which we have nahala which is translated as inheritance. We have ahuza, again, either possession or inheritance, from the verb ahaz, which means to take, to grab. We still have it in Arabic as ahaza. And then you have the allotments from root which is heliq, which is very interesting because that root in Arabic today means to raise, as you do with a razor. Like when you go to the barber, when he shaves your beard, is halak, to cut out something and allot it. And then we have the verb yarash, from which we have Yerusha, which is technically inheritance. Then one can see the complexity. I wanted to say this in the beginning, so that my hearers would not assume that my presentation, which is basically simplistic, but hits the nail on the head. So I'm going to take a shortcut, and then between the three of us, you can decide whether you would like to revisit and so on. But my intro is very important to keep in mind. So I'm going to begin with the conclusion and explain to my hearers what the difference between possession or propriety and inheritance is. Now here again, the Roman terminology, the legal Roman terminology, is very important and I will defer my hearers to my book, Land and Covenant, where I discuss this whole matter. There is a difference in Roman law between patrimony and then possession or propriety. The patrimony would be, in our terminology today, a family estate. The heirs may not change it or touch it. It is handed down to them in order for them to hand it down to their successors. Whatever the individual during his life accumulates even if he uses the estate or on the side that can become his propriety should he decide not to include it in the estate but the person may not play in the same way with the estate And notice the term in Latin, patrimoni. Moni seems to be reflecting a state, a condition, a donation, whatever it is. But it's the word patri, father. And that brings us to the famous pater familias. Now, when the original pater familias dies, he is followed by another one who becomes pater familias. And that person is in charge of the patrimony that is always something that has been handed down to him. Very important. Or to her, if we have a matter familias. Let's not go into the sexism and so on. Okay. One person. Now, when one comes to a piece of earth, which is the land, one cannot speak about a possession because technically when you were born you were born somewhere on this land you do not make the earth you can acquire possessions yourself we have another word for that rakush in hebrew so again it's very complex i'm asking the forbearance of my hearers really in this matter one has to listen to take notes and then do one's research on the basis of the original. Wikipedia won't be able to help you. And scholarly works in the West would not be able to help you. The land is something that you receive always as an inheritance. Now, let me go back to this verse of Joshua, which is very interesting. Joshua 8, 7, where very clearly... The original inherit, the verb yarash, is explained in the second part. Let's hear it. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and take the city as an inheritance, if I may say so. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And we have here the verb to give, to grant, Natan. Notice the explanation, which is very important, this Joshua 8 to 7. Now, let me go back to the land. Again, my apologies to my hearers because they have the distinct impression that jumping back and forth, but I have no choice. The fifth form, hif'il, of the verb yarash, which in the hif'il becomes horish. Very interestingly, already in the KJV, clearly in the RSV, and in all translations, has two meanings from the context, which is unbelievable. It can be, it is not can be, it is factually sometimes translated as to make someone inherit and some other times exactly the same verbal form is translated into dispossess. I mean, that is stunning. How could the same verb function not in two different connotations but in two opposite meanings the solution to make a long story short and here again i'm asking for the indulgence of my hearers one should always remember that the verbal form is the fifth form which is the causative to make someone else receive or do the action of inheriting This means depending on what the only person who has the authority to grant the inheritance and thus not to grant the inheritance can do to the addressee, which means that ultimately in the Bible, let us remember that God is the only proprietor King Malik, and we'll come back to that. And you heard me so many times translating Malik into proprietor, not king. King doesn't mean anything. The one who owns, who possesses. He alone is the one who can grant the inheritance. And we all know that not only in Roman law, but any law, the one who is in charge. And in this case, God is not only in charge, but he is the proprietor of the land can choose another heir and it's classic in the history of kingdoms and the roman empire was famous in that sonship is by decision of the father so he can choose any heir he wants to choose now with this i come and here the knowledge of arabic is of the essence <laughs> that the word to possess, to be the proprietor, is malakah, malak. And this is the actual meaning, and you could see it in the Bible, that Solomon owned everything. David, you remember, he entered the city of Yebus and became the city of David. I discussed this in Land and Covenant. It's his city, it's his kingdom, as we say in English, the realm where he possesses everything. Now, obviously, you can have landlords and so on, but in this sense, they function also as little kings, if you like. And you have the top king, remember how in the Middle Ages, the king had his own realm, and then his earls and so on had their own realms, and they could build whatever they want in it, and so on. So the actual possession is reflected in that root, Malak Malik, the owner. So here again, the king reigns does not mean much, it's too platonic, but in the Semitic languages... That noun and verb are very much business-like. And we have it still in Arabic. mulk is what you own, what is in your name when you go to the city hall. So when we put all these things together, what scripture is stressing in the play on so many verbs is that ultimately only God is the owner, the proprietor. In Israel, this is how one should translate that only God is the king of Israel. He is the only one who has propriety when it comes to Israel. And in this sense, the land is very important because this is the basis of your life. Remember Genesis chapter 1. Now, when you remember that you and the mammals need the vegetation which is the product of the land, if you recall. On day three of creation, we have a play between God made and he said, let the earth bring forth. It's the famous mother earth in all civilizations. That is why he alone becomes the Baal, the husband, the rain that comes from heaven. On the land, you have it very clearly in Hosea at the beginning. He is, in Arabic, we still have when you say earth of Baal means that an earth that has not been worked and thus that has not been impregnated by Baal. I mean, anyone in the Middle East uses this terminology and everybody understands it. And here I would like to take an aside about one of the terms that I mentioned way at the beginning, Nahala and Nahal, which is systematically translated as inheritance and Nahal to inherit. But then what is interesting in my mind, Nahal also means a wadi, a ravine, a valley where the water can run. It's a very tricky word. In other words, you do not have a brook there. But if it rains, then it becomes a small brook and sometimes a flood, very dangerous. That's why when you go and visit Petra, they tell you to be very careful, you know, and there was a big accident in the past where pilgrims were there and suddenly it started to rain. And so that is the meaning of Nahal Wadi. And for me, it is interesting, again, since my conviction is that... The biblical Hebrew is concocted, then I don't know. One should do the study to see whether there is not a play on that, that in a hall is a dry stretch of a valley, a ravine, a place for a brook that suddenly can be filled with water and thus can become living. You can use it and drink that water. All I'm saying I don't want to enter into debating Nahal. I'm proposing that one has the right to discuss and see whether in Scripture, again, it's not that let's go to the original Aramaic and Akkadian and so on, as people like to do in Europe, Western scholars. They don't know what they are talking about. You have a play, an interplay. The Bible is a total product and you have to work it inside. Obviously, you can use the other languages to clear things, as I do with Arabic or Aramaic, and so on. but you may not allow them to control. How many times I repeated that Arabic, for whatever reason, transforms the Yod, the Y in the original, into an Aleph, into A. Israel becomes israil Okay. You can't get the original anymore. So one has to be extremely careful. And this is why I brought this Nahal, Nahala. We don't need to debate that. We need just to understand that ultimately all translations falter at this point, even the Septuagint. And I think that was the intention of the authors to tell the mighty Greeks, that your language cannot comprehend. And again, I refer to the prologue of Sirach. Very important. But again, remember in my book, I have shown that the word Hebrew for the language of the Old Testament is not used except in the New Testament. But the language of Judah was called Judahite language. Hebrew is linked to the Hebrew Hebrew the one that moves around, and thus the shepherd, the Bedouin. It's interesting to remember all that. So... One should beware of the translations. And RSV, in my mind, is very much connected with Zionism. It came about in 52. And even when the translators translated Ezekiel, they do not differentiate between Eretz Yisrael and Admat Yisrael from Adama, the ground, and so on, which is essential in the Bible. I cannot say in Hebrew, in the sense of modern Hebrew. So one has to be very careful. I'm not saying that the KJV is better. It is better in the sense that more often than not, it tries to stick with inherit to translate yarash. But, you know, often it also uses the possess. But the RSV is a total calamity. And since most of us are used here in the United States, to English language, then we are bound to fall in this trap. So the ground in the Bible cannot be except inherited from the sole king, proprietor, possessor, who is God. And thus, it is always a gift. Let's remember Joshua 8, 7 in the original. And he decides, when he offers it through the same verb, horish the hif'il of yarash, to grant it to you as an inheritance, or to dispossess you of it. One more time, it's the same verb, a slap in your face. He controls. And how many times my students heard me, if you use a little bit your brains, you would try not to accept the offer of God when he grants you a land out of which he just threw the nations that were there and the text tells you why because they disobeyed him and he tells you that's all yours would you accept that well if i have the choice i would not in other words at any point i disobey i cannot say well it doesn't matter you know it's my land i can do as i wish no you may not he can use the same authority the same verb in the original hebrew to dispossess you of it. And we all know that a few centuries later, he did that. Notice, it's he who did that. It remains always a gift, the patrimony of the only father, God. Remember that beautiful text in Ephesians, where he said, I bend my knees to God from whom comes every patria which is very difficult to translate but anyone who hears it in the original in the Roman empire understand exactly what it means that's why he remains always the father of our lord and savior jesus christ and here alexandrian theology has committed an unforgivable error to make the son equal to god in everything that is not allowed. He is the father of our Lord. And how many times I bring into the picture the experience, because we like the word experience, I don't, you know, the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane. And I refer mainly to Luke, who is amazing. He speaks about Jesus sweating blood. That was not an easy thing. To admit fully, thy will be done, which means not mine. It's a joke to say that Jesus, the human Jesus, follow the will of the divine Jesus. If you follow your own will, you're not obeying. Remember, in theology, we have one person. So anyway, I'm taking all these asides to just inform my hearers to be extremely careful regarding this matter of the verb to possess and to inherit because it's a tiny slip that makes you imagine that something is yours as your propriety or possession whatever is yours is always a gift from god and father mark you started with my work on paul and it is precisely there where paul reminds the Corinthians that he is giving them something they did not have, but he himself received from God the same gift which he did not have, which is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel, according to Scripture, was handed to Paul in order for him to hand it to the others as gift. Very important to remember that. Everything is handed down by the soul master through his obedient servant, who is Jesus Christ. But it is God, God the Father, the only God, that grants this. And that is the meaning of these two words that have been mismanipulated by Alexandrian theology. In o Logos. The first premise is the Logos, which is the message of the gospel that was with God. And he hands it down to us as a gift. And that is why, let me end with this example that Richard Benton likes very much in the Middle East, especially the Muslims, because this is stressed in the Quran, Lillah, the propriety, which is kingship, is God's. They have it in all their stores when you enter to buy things, whether to eat or to buy. Al-Mulku Lillah. That's why, and I witnessed this more than once in Tripoli, which is basically Muslim in Lebanon, the owner of the store of sweets. If he notices that a waiter is pushing away a beggar, he tells him, why did you send him away with nothing? I mean, we're going to throw most of the stuff by the end of the day. That's what McDonald's does. <laughs> For heaven's sake, just give him a piece. And then he points to that sign on the main wall of the delicatessen. El mulku Lila. Once we comprehend this and notice, when it comes to your mother, the earth, without it, you're nothing. You can't live. Then, if you want to put it philosophically, and you know how I hate philosophy, it's the source of your life that is the propriety of God. That's very powerful. So, we started where we started, we ended where we ended, and I'm convinced. I try my best. If you would like to revisit another podcast, I'm willing to go in detail about all these things. But then, you know, if my hearers do not get into the habit of going back to the text and try to read it with the help of some books to understand the original, then we're bound. And that was The Arrogance of theology throughout the ages, that its promoters assume that if you know Greek or Latin that is enough. Or to cover it up, if you know Hebrew it is presented in Western books and Western dictionaries, as though it's a language that you can know from outside, then I think we don't. That's how shall I put it? The price of the gift <laughs> The price of the gift is a thorn in your flesh. However you turn it around, it remains as a gift. God gives it to you every day when you wake up that earth for you to live on. And at any point, he can dispossess you of it. And only he, and that is very important. Okay, I think I'm allowed to... Stop here, not wrap up. If I have to wrap up, I have to speak as long as I did. We don't have time for that. Father
1: Paul, you said aloud to stop, but you also mentioned the thorn in the flesh. I think we're going to
2: twist it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, I have no flesh. <laughs>
0: I'm dust <laughs> of the earth and I'll go back to the dust of the earth. Okay. Right. Well, thank you so much Father Paul for helping understand these terms and as you were talking I was looking at Genesis 17:8 when the promise is made to give the land of the Canaanites and it's interesting because it says venatati kol eretz kanaan la'achuzat olam and I think people when they think of the eternal possession I think they might get confused, and I think what you said is very enlightening here. But then I think one of the reasons why they get confused is because they don't read what comes next, which is v'hayiti lahem l'elohim, and I will be for them as God. Can you help me understand both the ahuzat olam, the eternal possession, but then the importance of having that phrase completed with, and I will be as God for them? Yeah, but you already translated ahuzat as possession. And this is
2: where I start. You're squeezing the issue because ahuza is just ahuza. And the verb ahaz means to take. The way laqah means to take and receive. Notice these verbs, to take and receive, are very connected. You may take something with your own power, which is never so in scripture when it comes to the land of the promise. Or you may receive it. I mean, it's a simple example. I come with a tray and I say, take whatever you want. What does it mean? You know, that is why it's very touchy. And I'm in trouble because most of the time in my book, you know, I cannot correct all the time RSV. I translate. I make the point at the beginning, be careful, but then you take it. The way you yourself read, I think because we have a multiplicity of verbs, let's go to the extreme where the hif'il of yarash can mean to make someone inherit and to dispossess. I mean, it's unbelievable. So I believe one should keep the original. It's very painful, but it's the only way. You have ahuzza, you have yerusha, you have nahala. These are three words, and one has to keep them and try to refer to them. The bottom line is that my answer is the last part of my presentation, that whatever you're talking about remains always a gift from God because the only original owner of the patrimony, the one who started it, is the great, 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 great grandfather. That's why the estates usually are, even in our word, in family names, the Kennedy estate, the Vanderbilt estate. But who is the first Vanderbilt? It's a matter of perception on your part that you are never the first Vanderbilt. As simple as that. You are a Vanderbilt, but you are not the first Vanderbilt. And this is something we have to channel. The funny thing that it's a reality to consider something that legally is perceived as being your property as not your property. Only you can do that because you alone, way down deep in the utmost depth of your being, know for a fact that you are not the first Vanderbilt. And this is how scripture addresses the issue. I know we're getting back to the propriety, but this is a central issue, perhaps the central issue of the Bible. That God was the king of Israel way before there was a Saul and David and Solomon. This is only in scripture. I don't care about what people say by giving me other examples. I'm referring to scripture. It is God alone who was, is, and shall ever remain the king of Israel. But the opponents of Jesus in John said to Pilate, we have only one king, which is Caesar. (laughs) That would be my answer. And the only way, as I said, is to keep the words and read them in context the way I try to read this verse, which is very funny. You have inherited Yerusha and then because God gave it to you. That applies forcefully if you are a farmer, even when you say you took the apple from the tree. It was not given to you, but you are just dreaming. <laughs> it's the tree that offered it to you. So technically, you never take without receiving. It doesn't work. And this is reflected in all languages where you have a play on the meaning of this verb. We use it every day in our language. When you say, I take you to school. Take means something that comes in your direction, but here you're using it as taking someone somewhere else. It's language. And I'm begging everybody that we have to submit to the language of scripture and stop saying well i know hebrew already let me tell you you don't tell me anything scripture has its own language it's the language of abram the ibri the hebrew the bedouin the passer-by who does not possess any earth the shepherd knows that he is always the son of the earth on which he and his family, and his flock tread. Deep down, I'm not talking about mental comprehension. It is so. If you start debating with the shepherd, he would just tell you, you know, I don't have time for you now. I have to take care of my flock.
1: That last comment you made is so powerful. It's not just about knowing the original languages, but then you have to hear the original languages as they're used as part of the language of Scripture. Something that's straightforward for you, Father Paul, takes time to digest. You have to hear it over and over again until you understand what it's saying in its language. It's a really helpful way to
2: put it. Father Timothy Lowe, whom we all know, is one of the first students of mine on this continent. And I would say he's the closest to me. And yet, he read the book, and then he told me, that's always painful with you, Father Paul, because one has to read you at least twice to begin understanding what you're saying. And this is what I just heard from you. And I hope that the people would give me the benefit that I'm reflecting scripture and check see to which extent it is so, and then to the extent they begin to perceive it submit not to what I'm saying, but to scripture. Like the parts we did today with all these words and verbs, I did not discuss in detail my book the way I did now, otherwise the book will be unending. But I am convinced that I wrapped up the entire argument powerfully and cogently that's why I started by referring to this professor from Finland and say, well, then you have the language there. And as I said, it's the combination because all these verbs and words, whether they are translated inheritance or possession, it doesn't matter. What matters is that all these original words interact in the text right? You refer to Genesis 18, where you have the word Ahuza, just before that you have the word Yerusha, and so on and so forth. That's why I like this instance where that same verbal form of yarash, which is technically inherit more than any other verb, suddenly you have to, you have no choice but to translate it as dispossess, otherwise the verse has no meaning because it says that he will take that land and give it to others. But then we have to submit to that. That reminds me of an example when my younger colleague in Romania got frustrated. with Why? The Romanians are so illogical. I said, why are you saying that? He said, because in all languages, the verb to thank is followed by a direct compliment, not a Indirect compliment. You say to thank someone. You don't say you thank to someone. And then his case was very powerful because he referred to three languages of three different stocks, Arabic, French, and English. That's why he was so assertive. I said, my good friend, you know, I can't help you there because if the Romanians are illogical, then the Germans and the Greeks are also illogical. So his eyes bulge up, especially because for him, Greek and German is sacrosanct. That's how they speak. So you have to submit to a language. Once it is handed to you, You can create your own language, that's fine with me. But once you have created it, the others and you have to submit to its rules. Arabic, French, English, to thank someone. Romanian, Greek, and German, to thank to someone. That's the way it is. Father Paul, I
1: think we'll end by giving both kinds of thanks on today's show. How does that sound?
2: Now, I'm not going to quiz you and see who is the direct and the indirect, God or I. But we don't need an answer. Both the direct and the indirect is only he. Thanks very much, Father Paul. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Thank, thank you both. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.